Today, we're chatting with Harley Finkelstein, entrepreneur, lawyer, and the president of Shopify. We'll be talking about the future of commerce, democratizing entrepreneurship, and career moves. Let's dig in. Welcome to Commerce Tea, a podcast to help you succeed on Shopify. I'm Rian. And I'm Kelly. Grab a mug and join us as we talk about all things commerce. Kelly, let's say I can't write code, but I want to create workflows that carry out repetitive tasks automatically. So that way I can focus on my business and create great customer experiences. What would I use? I recommend Mesa, a no-code workflow builder for any action your customer takes. You can use Mesa's built-in features to extend your connected apps, set up email notifications, receive forms, schedule tasks, delay workflows, and much more. Developers like me also love Mesa because we can lift the hood on any automation to customize for total control. Okay, I'm in. How do I start? Go to getmesa.com. That's G-E-T-M-E-S-A.com. And their team of automation experts will support you on your journey 24-7. Harley, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is such a pleasure. Uh, I've, I've known both of you for at least five years. I was, I'm sort of, you know, using the first Unite as as certainly when we we started, you know, we met each other, but it was probably before that. Um, and it's just, it's it's an honor to be on your show. Well, thank you for being here. We're, we're super amped up and we've got a question off the hop for you. Do it. Okay. So we love a good origin story and we think that yours is a great one to highlight. Before Shopify, you were an attorney. A career switch is common with entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So what was the catalyst to make your career shift? I never wanted to be a lawyer uh, or an attorney. I never I never wanted to uh, be in that profession. I went to law school rather uh, to become a better entrepreneur. And that was it. I had this little t-shirt business when I was in college at McGill. Um, we made t-shirts for universe, other universities and, um, and and for McGill as well. And a mentor of mine convinced me that my t-shirt business had, uh, he was more, he was a lot less polite about it, but effectively what he said was that the business had no competitive advantage. There was no moat around the business. And that even though I was like 20 years old at the time, even though like I was making a little bit of money and I was, my dad wasn't around then, my mom had no money. I was supporting my, my, my sisters, my mom and stuff. Uh, so I had enough money to help my family, but you know, 20 years old, if you have anything more than like $500 in your pocket, like you have money, right? It's like the most amazing thing ever because you, you have no idea what anything, anything costs at that point. Um, but this mentor convinced me that this business did not have any long-term potential and that I should consider adding some asset uh, or some skill set to my you know, portfolio of, of, of skills and, and portfolio of understanding. And he happened to be uh, a law professor. And of course, you know, if you ask a if you ask a barber if you should get a haircut, they're going to say yes, um, whether you need it or not. <laughs> you ask a law professor if you should go to law school, they're going to say yes. But actually, he was 100% right. And uh, his name is Phil. And, and, and Phil convinced me to go to law school. He happened to be teaching law at the University of Ottawa. So I moved here in 2005 to go to law school. And from the second I arrived uh, in, at, at law school to the second I graduated, it was always about the acquisition of skills and the acquisition of, of any assets that would make me a better entrepreneur um, after law school. And it just turned out that while I was in law school, that teacher business that I had, that was a wholesale business selling to other universities, 
uh, worked really, really well in the college dynamic, meaning you don't have to go to class, you show up for the exam. If you pass, you're good. Law school was not like that. Law school took attendance. Law school required you to actually go to class, otherwise you'd fail. And so I needed a way to make money concurrently while being in school. And I had the really great fortune in 2005 of meeting um, uh, Toby, meeting one of the smartest human beings I've ever met. Um, and Toby was just transitioning from selling uh, snowboards to selling the software behind the snowboard business. And I became uh, merchant 136 or so. I always get that wrong, but it's about 136 on Shopify. And then after law school, uh, I, uh, I, I practiced law for all of 10 months, which is the exact least amount of time you need to practice law to get called to the bar to officially become a lawyer. Uh, it's 10 months in Canada. And I practiced law for 10 months. And then uh, halfway through, I just, I knew I was going to continue it. And I called Toby and said, I'd love to join you. And, and, and it was, you know, Cody and Daniel were around uh, at that point. And I said, I'd love to join you, you, you three and, and, and help build the business side of Shopify. And that was, uh, that was about 12 years ago. And the rest is history. That's, I love that. Couple things. One, my best friend is a lawyer, and she always uh, jokes that when she speaks to law school professors now, and if she were to ask a law school professor if she should go to law school, they'd be like, don't do it. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, it's funny because I get this question a lot because I, I've, I've talked a lot about how law school was very much uh, like finishing school for me, and it was incredibly instructive and, and valuable. But I also went to business school. I have an MBA and I, I, people ask me about that. I was like, I don't think you need it. Now I'm not saying you should like the MBA is, is, is valueless or useless. Um, for me though, the MBA felt incredibly pedagogical, very case study based. Um, it did not reflect the realities of being an entrepreneur, which is strange because it's a business degree. Whereas law school is not a business degree. It's actually a law <laughs> degree, but actually I took a lot more skills from that that particular curriculum, whether it was, um, there's this term is legal maxim. Uh, it's a Latin term called ratio decidenti. It's basically the summary of the case. It's like the, the lesson that you would take. If you, if you, you know, if it's four, it's a 3000 page case, what is the one thing that summarized the takeaway? And that's called the ratio decidenti. That ability to read hundreds or thousands of pages and come up with the one line or figure out the one lesson out of all of that, that really matters. Well, that talks a lot about prioritization that allows you to very quickly ascertain what is the thing. And, you know, we're all three of us are entrepreneurs. So we know that that is really important. We get documents all the time. We get emails, sometimes 18 page emails. And very quickly, we're like, all right, what are they asking for right now? Yeah. Um, and another one was critical reasoning or critical debate that, you know, law, law students, frankly, at most, most law schools tend to be somewhat, um, what's a good way to put this that's polite? Uh, <laughs> high, there's a high quality of discourse in a lot of law schools. There's a lot of debate. And so the ability to walk into a classroom, um, particularly where you feel like an outsider, like I did, and the professor says something and a bunch of you as students have to debate it, that idea of being able to debate and argue and negotiate on your toes, that was also a very valuable asset. Um, but learning, you know, uh, a bunch of practices or best practices about the marketing profession in my MBA, I think those are, those were dated before they were even in the textbook. I think it's an important piece of talking about just deep generalism as a whole. 
having these different backgrounds and applying them to whatever you're doing in, in entrepreneurship, as you mentioned, like, sure, an MBA can be useful to a degree, but being able to apply skills from some other facet of your life is so hugely beneficial and could be a, give you that leg up. I have my master's in social work, so right. I'm a trained therapist. <laughs> I use this all, all the, the time, time. Of course and I never in a million years want to be a therapist. <laughs> But it plays out in my day-to-day. I'm really good at establishing rapport. I'm really good at conflict resolution. Not so good at, I still have conflict avoidance issues, but my therapist is working with me on that. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that that degree is so useful. If you- if you can pull all those things together, you know, whether you call it a polymath or whatever you decide to call that term, it, it, there's a lot of terms for it. Mm-hmm. If you can synthesize information and you can pull things that you read, you know, a month ago and an experience you had two years ago and an article you read this morning and you can synthesize all those different things and that helps you make a better decision. I mean, that 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 to me is 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 how to have real impact. That That to me is how to make better decisions. In a, in a much more timely manner, and I, I don't think I don't think school teaches you that in general. But certainly, the MBA was not. Um, yeah, this is not supposed to be an MBA thrashing, you know, thrashing session. But um, but you you know, we started the conversation around around career development. I, you guys use a different term, but 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 it's basically the career trajectory and, and where you go. And and I think that where what most people get wrong is that they look at their career as this linear slope. It's up and to the right. It's a ladder. You go from step one to step two to step three. And the most impressive people I know, the most um, interesting people I know, the most successful people I know, they don't look at it that way. It, it, it is not linear. It is, you know, it, it's it's ups and downs and sideways. And, and eventually it all sort of trends up and to the right. But it's a jungle gym and not a ladder. And I think when you when you use a less finite game of, of evaluating and judging your own career, a lot of good things happen. And entrepreneurship, in many ways, if you are an entrepreneur, if you're a founder, um, you, you're sort of forced into thinking about things in, in a non-linear way, in a non-finite you know, finite way, in an infinite way. You sort of have to do it that way, especially if you love what you're doing. Because if you love what you're doing, the goal is not to make X dollars or to have X contracts or to have X number of merchants. It's to keep playing as long as you possibly can. And that is what life's work is. I love that. So much. I, I do have one question for you because when you you said you called up Tony and Tony, Tony who am I? Where have I been? You called up Toby. I'm going to start calling said, him Tony. Wanna... By the way, it's an it's an amazing <laughs> it's an amazing thing to think of him as a Tony. I, I don't know why. It's just it's so funny. It's great. <laughs> Tell him Ryan says hello. Uh, she's now calling you Tony. <laughs> He's going to start calling you Ryan. By the way. Yep. That's fine. That's fine. That's an accepted name of mine. Uh, so, so you called up Toby and you said, I want to do the thing. I want to take this jump. And there's so many folks who are afraid to make that call. They're afraid to pick up the phone and say, you're doing something rad. I want to be on your team. What does it take? to be on your team. And what would you say to someone who's kind of in those shoes and, and and working through that process right now? That's not where you find a life's work. That's not where you find the magic. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's trite to even say it, you know, it's, it's so obvious, but you know, you got to get out of that comfort zone. And, and so what I would say is that, um, 
Well, first of all, I had an unfair advantage because I was a merchant first before uh, before I joined Shopify. And so let's take a step back for a second. Um, we all have sort of these two tracks that we're supposed to be on. One track is our personal track. The other track is our professional track. And people that describe what they're doing as life's work or they found their quote unquote calling or they have been able to find this harmony with their both both those things. What tends to happen is the Venn diagram overlap of their professional life and their personal life uh, overlaps. Not entirely, because you know I'm not. Sure, I, I love my wife and I love my daughters. I'm not sure really how they play a role in my professional life. Although I'm sure they have a big influence on it. But but the goal I think for anyone who who wants to have a really fulfilling career, who wants to search for their life's work, is to have as much of a Venn diagram overlap between personal life and professional life. And from a very early stage in my life, entrepreneurship was more than just a way to make money. It was always a way to solve problems. It was this, this magic tool that I kept in my tool belt and just pulled it out anytime I needed it. So it started when I was a kid. You folks have probably heard this on stage at Unite, but I want to be a DJ. Uh, no one would hire me. Oh, start my own DJ company, hire myself. That sounds like that sounds like a, a great solution. And and it was. And I ended up DJing 500 parties. Now, were those first 30 parties very good? No, they were terrible. I would have gotten fired <laughs> if it was anyone other, others, anyone else's company. But it wasn't. It was my company. So I didn't fire myself. And then much later in a much more serious part of my life where dad's gone, family's broke, I pulled out that tool again. I was able to go to college, go to McGill, and also sell t-shirts and make some money and help my my sisters and, and my mom and 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 my own rent. And so entrepreneurship for me was, wasn't only just this professional side of it. It was very personal to me. It was a way that I was allowed, I, I was enabled to, to continue to live, to continue to survive, to not, you know, to not starve and not be homeless or, you know, not that I was ever, you know, worried of being homeless, but it just, it was this great thing for me. And so when I was sitting in tax law class in 2006 and I set up this t-shirt site, t-shirt shop on Shopify, it was like magic because all of a sudden, I remember like, I, you know, this is when, this is like early liquid days. We only had, I don't know, probably 12, maybe 10 different themes, maybe less than that. It was like, you know, a couple different variants of, of each theme, but there wasn't very much going on there. And I was able to set up a Shopify store and start selling all within the span of a couple of hours. And then the next day I started getting sales. That was magic to me. That was this, like, once again, entrepreneurship um, allowed me to solve the problem. In that case, in law school, was I needed to make money while concurrently being in class. And so as I was sitting there as a lawyer, hating it, I mean, law is sort of the opposite of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship, as much as possible, it's not perfect meritocracy because some of us are born on third base and, and you know, I, let's all check our privilege, but, but it's, it's a, it's a more pure, it's a, it's a better version of, of a meritocracy than the law, which is all about legacy. How long have you been here? Who was your, who are your parents? What is your last name? Where, you know, what does your social network look like? Because you're going to have to get those people as clients. It wasn't a meritocracy. So as I'm sitting there as a early young lawyer hating it, all I can think about was what I, what I really want to do. And what I really wanted to do was I wanted to give more people the opportunity to access this tool that, that, that I call entrepreneurship. And the best vehicle to distribute more of those tools called entrepreneurship, the best tool I had ever encountered 
was this piece of software called Shopify. Yeah, it was bold to call Toby and say, hey, I want to come work for you. But what the heck else was I going to do? That was like, that was the greatest idea that I that I ever had. And the reason that I think I can stay at Shopify, you know, for the rest of my life, if, if Toby and the board will have me, is I still have not found a better way to provide more access to this thing called entrepreneurship, which is access to people having a better life, people doing something they love, pe- people sharing their their gift with the world. And I think that's, um, I feel very fortunate to have that. And, and I know both of you feel the same way as, as you both have started and now run these incredible businesses on your own. What the heck else would you be doing? Being a therapist, <laughs> unhappy. <laughs> There's nothing else I'd rather exactly. be doing right now. Well, I've, yeah, it, it, I love that. And I, I love that you took that courageous step of, of doing the thing to, to, to do the thing and to make yourself happy and to chase your dreams. And, I, and I've always really appreciated your position on entrepreneurship and the democratization of it. And as you say, arming the rebels. What do you mean by arming the rebels and how do we all help? Well, first, you are helping and you are arming the rebels on your own, independent of, of, of Shopify. And, but let's be clear, let's sort of define things because one of the things that is, is important to acknowledge is that even the term rebel is somewhat controversial. If you've grown up in a war-torn country, the idea of a rebellion or rebels doesn't have the same connotation as, as maybe it does for us who, you know, grew up in North America, where rebel, you know, the, the idea of rebelling or being rebellious or a rebel is actually kind of has been kind of positive, right? We all kind of admired the rebels growing up. The protagonist in so many of the movies and shows we watched growing up were kind of rebellious. Um, and so there's there's a different connotation to it. But what we really mean is this. For basically since the creation of commerce, which is effectively tied to the creation of currency, which is very, very old, in order to access this thing called enterprise, free enterprise, capitalism, small business, entrepreneurship, you needed capital. That was the main ingredient to starting a business, to being an entrepreneur, to creating a a revenue generating entity. And capital, while it's a very easy thing to explain, if you give me money, you know, you can now have the keys to your store. If you give me money, we will now give you a bank loan to go do whatever you want. If you give me money, you can now have inventory of, of whatever you're selling. So for a long time, the idea of entrepreneurship or business was limited to those that had capital. And what has changed is that now capital is not the main ingredient because the tools that are required to build a business have been democratized through technology, through software. So now if you answer sort of it's the answer to the, to the question of what would happen if anyone who wanted to or needed to because those are not always the same thing were able to build a business and that i think is what technology has provided and, and and our version of that is through the software called shopify which means that anybody that has ambition can start a business for $29 which again it's not it's not nothing but it's it's affordable for most people particularly in, 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 in the countries and the geographies that we serve, although we need to do a better job serving other countries where $29 may not be affordable at some point. But for $29, you can start a business right now at your mom's kitchen table in your 
on, on the grass in front of your home at a library or a coffee shop if this was in the middle of a pandemic. And that store can grow to be a multi-billion dollar company if you want it to be. And if you just want it to be a really great way to pay your bills and avoid working a corporate job that you hate, or you want to be able to give your family um, a place to to go into as a family business, uh, as Mike D likes to talk about uh, from, from Mike D's barbecue sauce, then that is accessible through entrepreneurship. And that is the mission of Shopify. We want to provide anyone who wants to and needs to with the tools that they need to actually self-actualize, to actually create a real business. And we also believe at the same time that that is happening, you also have massive consolidation where retail, uh, the big players in retail are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so at the same time that we're trying to democratize entrepreneurship, we also want to remind the consumer, basically everyone listening, whether you're involved in e-commerce or not, that you can also buy from independent retailers. And so the idea of arming the rebels isn't just uh, uh, a slogan to create this great energy and community around entrepreneurship does that, but it also reminds everyone that if we want the future of retail and commerce to be interesting and exciting, then we as consumers need to support independent brands because that way the future retail is in the hands of many, not the few. And so that's a very long uh, answer to a very short question, but since it's a podcast, we can spend a bit more time on things that I don't get a chance to often dive into. But, but that really is what it means to to arm the rebels. And 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 I think um, if you replace rebels with independent businesses or people with ambition or people that make stuff, um, I think giving those types of people the tools in which they can go and 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 bring their thing, whatever it might be, to market to a global market. That's pretty damn cool. I think it's also you. You had mentioned, you know, helping others and providing these tools. I, very relevant in the past year with the pandemic. Uh, you have these these brick and mortar businesses who are family run for it's passed down generation, generation, generation have never sold online. Suddenly having to pivot their entire model just to stay in business. And you know, we've talked in depth on the podcast about the pandemic and and how businesses have adjusted. But I would love to hear maybe one or two of your favorite success stories that came out of last year. One of them, I I, I just think is a really really cool story, particularly for those listening from the UK. Um, it's a story about a very well known brand in the UK called Pizza Pilgrims. Uh, these are pizza restaurants in the UK, uh, and they're great pizza restaurants. Uh, if you've ever been to one, you know it's quite delicious. But they're a brick and mortar pizza restaurant that was forced to close during the lockdown. And almost on a dime, they began selling pizza kits in the mail. And they started creating this direct-to-consumer offer uh, with what they call pizzas in the post. And they've had their largest uh, day of sales post-pandemic, not pre-pandemic. They sell it immediately. So despite the fact that all of their restaurants have to close, their business is booming. I'll give you another one. There's a great company uh, called Thick out of out of Toronto. It's actually, I mean, this is a hair salon, uh, so very traditional hair salon business. Of course, pandemic hits; everything has to close, particularly in Canada, where the lockdown measures here are 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 are, are extreme. Um, there's a curfew, for example, in the province of Quebec. I think after 8:30 p.m., you're not allowed to be outside your house, which is about 30 minutes post sundown. So, I mean, that's that's a serious um, that, that's a big weight on on the community. 
So these hairstylists from uh, THIC that, uh, out of Toronto shut these things down and they decide to start their own like hair oil company. And now they're releasing hair accessories and they're expanding their product base. And they went from an entirely 100% long-term service-based business as, as, as hairstylists to having this incredible hair product brand. Um, or Sassy Jones, okay? Sassy Jones, great brand, have lots of retail locations, permanently close April 2020. And now I think their performance, I think um, e-commerce is now up by like 3,000%. Since wow. March 2020, monthly visits have increased like 200%. And revenue went from $350,000 a month to like $1.5 million a month. And they they did they did more than ten million dollars in sales in twenty twenty. Now, what wonderful, amazing, right? Now, why are these examples interesting? Because I'm not talking about Heinz ketchup. I, I love Ben. You know my relation with Ben Francis. He's a buddy. I think they're. I think you know Jim Shark is amazing. I, I you know I, I think um, Joey and Tim from Allbirds are great. Richard from Fashion. These are great people. Um, I'm not talking about these big, massive blowout stories. I'm talking about. Pizza Pilgrims, Sassy Jones, and Thick, like these stories of resilience, they have given me so much energy and so much inspiration in a time where energy and inspiration are in short supply. And I said this in like in June 2020 when I began to do a little bit of more broadcast and media post-pandemic hitting. And I I I've said this a couple, you know, I said this on on television that like it's a tale of two retail worlds. The resilient ones and the resistant ones. And the resilient ones are kicking butt. And the resistant ones are waiting for the status quo to come back. And it's not happening, but they're still waiting for it. And the most interesting thing about our community, the Shopify partner ecosystem, um, the people that work in our kind of vicinity, and obviously both of you play a very large role in the Shopify partner ecosystem and the economy. We are lucky because for the most part, the merchants and businesses and brands that we encounter are mostly the resilient ones. We have this disproportionate amount of resiliency happening in and around the Shopify ecosystem. And that, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this, but that is fucking cool. That means that we, for better or for worse, because we also don't want to be blind to the fact that some businesses are not, we're not able to pivot. They were not able to be resilient. But those that that had that opportunity and then took that plunge to be resilient. I don't know how you cannot, I don't know how you can't be inspired by them. I think it's also important to note those that are resistant, it's not too late to pivot. It's not too late to find that opportunity. Just because, you know, vaccines are starting to be distributed in some places, lockdowns are lifting. There's still an opportunity to, to jump into this, this new space, this new territory. And yeah, it is terrifying as it's hell. It's totally terrifying. And it's, it's totally new. And it's totally out of your comfort zone. And we're all kind of feeling that same way. <laughs> yep. It's there's there's and and in many ways, that edge of terrifying, that is where things get really interesting. I did this, um, I did a, uh, an Instagram live a couple of days ago with one of my best friends, Steve Bechta. And uh Steve's great Canadian restaurateur. He pivoted his business during the pandemic to go from having three very high-end restaurants to doing these great meal kits. And, and he publicly said on this Instagram live that he's, he sold 15,000 meal kits. I mean, right, these meal kits, these are, it's a high-end restaurant. So 15,000 meal kits is a lot of money, a lot of revenue. And someone that was listening sent Steve and I a note right afterwards and said, 
I was one of those people who, when I saw the tidal wave coming, I ran for the shore and grabbed my towel and waited for the wave to go back into the ocean. I was, re I was resistant. And I kept thinking, it's too late. It's June. I should have done it a month ago. Now it's August. Should have done it a month ago. Now it's November. Should have done it a month ago. And just because he, this particular person heard this, this, you know, short little Instagram live that we did was like, I'm just going to start doing meal kits. And this weekend, um, my family, my wife and I are going to be ordering from this restaurant. Uh, and they're just starting to do meal kits now. And that's absolutely okay. And it's not too late. And I think that we, sh it's, it's a great point you make, Kelly, which is let's, let's, let's remind everyone that like, not only are we still in a pandemic, but even on the other side of the pandemic, the resiliency and the new muscles and the new experiences that you build right now will be incredibly valuable long-term because hopefully we never have another global pandemic. But if you can get really, really good at thriving on change, you're going to be really, really good no matter what change comes your way. Yeah. Right now it's the pandemic. What's next? We don't know, but something else will, will occur in this world. And again, we'll be presented with an opportunity to change and to ad adapt with it. I, I love that juxtaposition between uh, resilient and resistant. And that, that kind of just is, is marinating now in my, in my brain. But I, I have a question and it's, it's a divergence from this. And it's about you and it's about your wife. And you are both philanthropists, which I think is awesome. Can you speak to us about your drive to give back to the community and why? Well, first of all, let me just, for those that don't know, Lindsay and I, Lindsay and I do not come from very much. We come from very humble beginnings. And I, I, that's not, I'm not saying that as a flex, like, look where we come from, look where we are. I mean that, like, I didn't grow up with people that I knew that were, um, quote unquote, philanthropists. I'm not even sure what that even means, but I didn't grow up with people that were, you know, really contributing deeply to community. Um, at least not financially, because the people that I grew up with didn't really have that that, that sort of money. Um, that was sort of what the people that lived in the nice houses did. And, and so I think because Lindsay and I have clawed our way um, to where we are uh, as, as parents, as humans, as, as entrepreneurs, um, it just feels like if you have any whatsoever, any excess time or money or connections, or the ability to help other people, and you have some capacity, and you've had some luck in your life, pay it forward. I remember when, um, I think it was our Series C, um, someone called me. Uh, actually, I'll say who it is. It's D Daniel DeBow, who now, currently, who now works at Shopify. He was the founder of Helpful and a bunch of other companies, a great entrepreneur, and he's all over Twitter as well, and I'm sure he's going to listen to this. But Daniel called me after the Series C and says, congratulations on the Series C. What do you what are you going to do with? Like, there was a small uh, secondary component to it, so I, I was able to you know take a little bit of take a little bit of money. It was the first time I actually had any like real money in my life. And he's like, "What are you going to do with it?" I was like, "Oh, I haven't thought about that." And he's like, "Well, there's a lot of companies out there, a lot of young entrepreneurs, a lot of founders, a lot of startups that really would you know a ten thousand dollar check from you would be a big deal for them. One, it would give them some money, but two, it would give them." some incredible motivation, some, it, it would make them feel like they're validated. And so early on, we started doing a little bit of that, like angel investing in a couple different companies. And then after that, we're like, well, what's, what, what does our community need? And, and our, our, the big project that Lindsay and I really doubled down on early on was, uh, Lindsay and I are both Jewish. Um, we're not from Ottawa. We live in Ottawa now. Ottawa is the capital of Canada. It's a G7 capital. And there is no 
synagogue. There's no Jewish center in, in downtown Ottawa. And so we thought, well, what if we were to create and, and, and create a, a synagogue? The feeling that we got from that project of, of building something from nothing, it was reminiscent of starting a, a, a startup, being a founder of a, of a business. It gave us so much energy, except other people can share in that, in that thing, in that project. And so we just just kept doing it. And like, what else can we do? And, you know, Lindsay, when we had uh, Zoe, our, our, our two-year-old, um, Lindsay had a very, very difficult birth, uh, emergency C-section, very, very scary. And um, as the spouse, uh, you know, I, I like, I wanted to be with her. And I, and the, the area of the hospital um, for high risk, you know, new moms and, and new, new babies had no seating area. Like it was just obvious that it was, it was, it was a bit of a mess. And so, came home a day later and Lindsay and I, you know, gave each other a hug and we got through this. And now we have these two beautiful daughters and we said, well, you know, we got to do something about this now. Like there's a problem. We like, we need to create a space in that hospital so that during the most stressful times of people's lives when they're having their children and these are high risk births in some cases, emergency C-sections, there needs to be a place to make them feel a little bit more relaxed, whether it's an extra couple of chairs, or it's a small little, you know, family lounge, or it's a place where mom can, you know, go for a little walk or have a seat on a couch and if she doesn't need to be in bed. And so we just did that. And so there is no strategy to it. The strategy is um, if you have the means to do so, whether it's money or time, find areas in your life on a global level or on a local level um, and do something about that. And, and And the cool part about that is that creates a flywheel because now other people see it. And they're like, oh, that's cool what Harley and Lindsay did. We're going to do that too. And then other people do it as well. And, and what you end up creating is this, this cycle of reciprocity where now when you have some success, other people, um, and when everyone has some, has some success, you immediately feel like you should contribute. And then other people think they should contribute. And I think that's how you build real community. That's how you build real culture in your in your cities. That's how you build great places for us to live. And you can do it on a global level or you can do it on a local level. But I don't know. I don't know if that's a, a satisfactory answer, but that's the way we, we think about it. And we don't call ourselves philanthropists per se. It's just Lindsay and I are really fortunate. Um, Shopify and, 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 and our lives have given us these incredible things in which we can contribute to. Um, how can we not do it? I have to say, Harley, that I, I know that one of the, one of your big donations was to Chabad. Mm-hmm. And I, I read some articles about it and why, and, and your reasoning why. And Chabad fed me during my time at Arizona State University more times than I can count. Wow. And so when you made, I was, that's something, I just, I just think that you doing that, both, both everything you're doing is fantastic, but the, your donation to the Jewish community as, an, as a Jewish person is, is really meaningful. And I, I really... I'm appreciated. I'm that rabbi, um, whose whose synagogue we we sort of helped build um, for him, uh, he used to come and see me in law school. And I'm not religious. My my, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors, um, so I have a connection to it. My father is is now religious. Uh, he became religious um, in the last couple of years. But I don't. I'm not a religious person per se. I'm very much a secular Jew. But this rabbi, which just come on every Friday, just asked me how I was doing, and I was just like, I just thought like, what a nice guy, like. Law school is tough. I was running a business on the side. Like this guy's just coming here just to see how I'm doing. He'd ask me if I want to wrap fill in, which is sort of a religious thing you do before the Sabbath. But he didn't care if I was religious or not. He just, he knew that I was 
there and he just asked how I was doing. And so I randomly said to him at one point in law school, hey, I, I, I have very little, but if I ever have enough, I'd love to help you. And that turned into six years later building um, the, uh, the Finkelstein Chabad Jewish Center here in Ottawa. And uh, um, I, I love hearing that story that you've also been touched by them and then in, in a very positive way. Yes, that's yes. My heart is so full talking about this. Wow, this got, this, this got real. This got real, right? <laughs> like we're supposed to be talking about like great pivots in e-commerce and 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 the ecosystem. But um, I think what I think this conversation actually is fairly demonstrative of the way that the three of us operate our lives, which is that there is no major disconnect between professional and personal, and it's all one and the same. And and you know we're, we we know each other through this ecosystem, the Shopify community, but it doesn't feel like it's our, it's our professional community. It feels just as much like it's our personal community too. That is really unique. And I, I don't think that's unique to Shopify. Just, that is just unique in general. It is. It is. Although I do want to actually talk about being a Shopify partner. Let's talk about that. Hey, Rian. What can I do to help my support team be more efficient? I recommend Gorgeous. Gorgeous combines all your communications channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone into one platform that gives you an organized view of all help requests. This saves your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. Sounds great. What else can it do? With Gorgeous, you can pre-write and save responses to your most frequently asked questions. You even have access to the customer's order information, so you can personalize responses with things like an order or tracking number. This then frees up your time so your support team can focus on complex questions. This sounds like a great way to also increase sales and brand loyalty. Where can I learn more? To request a demo, visit commercet.com forward slash gorgeous. That's commercet.com slash G-O-R-G-I-A-S. Both Rhea and I have built our careers on top of Shopify. And we were both fortunate to discover Shopify earlier on. Rhea and before I did, I joined Shopify community in 2014. Uh, I get a lot of questions that basically, is it too late to become a Shopify partner? I get the same questions all the time. And I, I mean, I have my answer, but what are your thoughts? <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of amazing, right? Because, um, uh, I, I, sorry, I don't really understand why people ask that because the, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, Shopify is now 9% of all e-commerce in the US. We now have 1.7 million merchants. Every 28 seconds, a brand new brand new entrepreneur gets their first sale on Shopify. So actually, in many ways, the opportunity is so much bigger now than it was for you, Kelly. Like, exactly. way bigger. Like, in 2010, that's pre-IPO, Shopify Plus was created February 14th, I think it was, 2014. There's a TechCrunch article uh, uh, that that Daryl uh, had written uh, when he was at TechCrunch. I remember it because I think it was Valentine's Day and, and I was working that day and, and uh, Lindsay wasn't so happy about that. But but uh, in 2014, Plus didn't exist. Uh, SFN didn't exist. Shopify Payments didn't exist. Shop Pay did not exist. Cash Off Capital doesn't exist. Uh, again, like there's no enterprise because Plus is not even around then. So it's it's a funny thing to answer because in many ways it's the easiest thing to answer. No no way is it was was there more opportunity then. There's way more opportunity now, and you can say, well, there's more people. Yeah, so the numerator in the equation is bigger, but the denominator is so much bigger. We probably only had I don't know 
80, 100,000 merchants then. We now have 1.7 million merchants. So um, I, I tweeted about this a little while ago, but but I mean, you folks know the 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 amount of opportunity just keeps growing. So not only do I not buy that, that it's, it's too late, but I actually think like, the opportunity is probably, it's probably easier now than it was then. Because, you know, think about just from an app perspective or a theme perspective, forget the agency side or the, the custom build stuff, but just from app perspective or theme perspective. Um, if you are starting an online business today, one of the first stops you make is the Shopify app store. That's part of your process of building. And so if you have a Shopify app in there, um, you're going to get seen. It, it will be a go-to-market strategy for you. Whereas in 2014, you may have people stumbling, you know, stumbling upon the app store, but it wasn't really part of, 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 of the traditional journey of building a new modern retail business. Um, so yeah, I, I don't buy that at all. And, and, and if you don't believe me, ask, ask partners that have just recently joined. In fact, one of the things I used to love to do at Unite uh, when we were all in person together was, you guys remember this, I used to call out random partners to stand up. <laughs> and what was neat was like some of the partners you knew and some of them you'd never even heard of before. And then you find out that like, you know, they did 600 stores and they have 50 people at their company and they didn't exist a year ago. You know, Shopify cares deeply about um, our merchants. Um, that's who you know, that's why we go to work every day. That's why we get up in the morning. But without our partners, Shopify would not be where it is today. And that that goes for every type of partner we have. Um, and I said this in 2015, 16, and 17, and 18 on stage um, at, at Unite. We want to create more value for you than we capture for ourselves. And and it's one thing to say that. You sort of talk with the Bill Gates line. Um but the partners that have been around for a long time actually demonstrably have evidence to that effect that we leave room on the table so our partners can participate. There is so much opportunity in that ecosystem and it's only going to get bigger. It's baffling just, you know, reflecting on my own journey. You know, I, I came in as a Shopify partner, solo freelancer. I have a team of 20 now. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and, and it's uh, like, and I got to tell you, I mean, like you, you, you and I talk offline. We're not being recorded, so you hear me say this like offline uh, to you, and not everyone's listening to us. But like, I don't know if you fully appreciate Kelly how much pride I get in watching, uh, frankly, both of you build these incredible companies on top of Shopify that I don't take for granted for a second that you've selected Shopify as the platform to build on top of. That your success in very many in a, in a very real way feels like my success. Um, I don't want to go all, all Jewish mom on you, but like I'm freaking <laughs> proud of, of, of what I'm, what I've seen. And, and, and sometimes you call me and we have really tough chats about, you know, you going through something in your business, or I need help on something in our, my business. And, and it's not always rainbows and butterflies, but when you zoom out for a second, you realize what you have built. Um, it's, it's incredible. And, and it's, you know, uh, I know that that both of you have very much influenced a lot of people, in some cases to drop out of school and start their own agency, in some cases to leave a job they hate and start their own thing, or to join a Shopify partner, uh, a theme designer decides to build an app, an app developer who decides to become a Shopify Plus partner. It's 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 amazing. And um, I, I've been at Shopify now for uh, uh, about a third of my life, um, which is crazy. Uh, and one of the things that I, I get, you know, I love watching our merchants go from, you know, cradle to scale from zero to B 
being these brands that are discussed as a competitive threat in the Nike board meetings, which, you know, I don't know <laughs> that's true, but I just assume some of our stores are like, I mean, I assume Noble is being discussed. I assume Albert's is being discussed in Gymshark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I love that, right? Because again, those are the rebels and the rebels are now challenging the empires. Like, hell yes, that is democratizing. <laughs> that is the cool stuff. But I also love watching the partners grow to be these formidable, these forces in modern retail. We love being part of this, yeah. without a doubt. I'm so grateful. Without a doubt. Without, without a doubt. This, this has been the journey of, of a lifetime. And we're still just We're getting just getting started. started. Exactly. <laughs> so. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I got nothing else to do also. Like, this is it for me. This is like, this is it. I have, like, you know, like many of us, I have found that thing. And I'm so lucky that I found the thing that I want to do the rest of my life. Um, I have to say, I'm not going to say who it is because I want them to be able to announce it. But somebody sent me a DM yesterday on Twitter saying, this is not just to toot my own horn or anything like that. But they're like, thank you. Because of the encouragement you gave me, I just put in my two weeks notice to go all in and building my Shopify app. Yes. I love those stories. Awesome. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. And, and, and it's cool, right? Because you sort of, when you think about the entrepreneurs on Shopify, you, me- you immediately jump to the merchants. But what you don't understand is there's an entire layer of partners that are also entrepreneurs. They're also using Shopify, leveraging the platform to be entrepreneurs and to and to create their own ventures as well. Like like that that actually, I haven't really thought about that until right now. Actually, um, so so bear with me because it's going to be a bit of a, a stream of consciousness. But Shopify is really a company for entrepreneurs, by entrepreneurs, connected to other entrepreneurs. I think about that, right? Like the like the people that work at Shopify, like for the most part, all, you know, a lot of them, like we're all entrepreneurs. The people that we're serving, merchants, are entrepreneurs. The partners are also entrepreneurs. A lot of in a lot of cases, the consumers that care about supporting independent brands and entrepreneurs and 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 small business, they're also entrepreneurs. It, it's kind of this interesting thing and 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 that, I think, is why we all get along so damn well, which is not something that traditionally you had in business. There was inherently friction in business, right? Like a lot of companies historically, this is going back even like in the Gordon Gecko days, but like, you know, win-win means we win twice as opposed to I win and you win and we all kind of kumbaya. Um, but that idea of all being, you know, being in it together, I don't know, that's, that's a special thing. It really is. It truly, it truly is. So we usually end these uh, podcast episodes with a store recommendation, but I want to switch things up this week and ask you for a book recommendation instead, because there are never too many books to add to my already started, but still need to finish list. So um, I have two books on my desk right here. Um, The first one was a gift from Lindsay Craig. Um, who's our director of growth. And it's called, it's called Storynomics by Robert McGee. But it's basically the science behind great storytelling. And Robert McGee, I think he, he wrote something like 150 um, different screenplays, of which something like 50 of them uh, were like Oscars. I got Oscars for it. But um, it just, it talks about like character empathy and the power of underdogs and the emotional arc of brand story, um, and structure of story. It's just, it's a great one. So that's not my, that's, but that's not my pick. The other one that I'm reading right now, and I'm taking lots of notes on, is called Understanding Exposure. Do you know this one? No. Do not know this one. Okay. 
So uh, I love taking pictures and I usually use this camera. This is my friend Chase Jarvis likes to say the best camera is the one you always have on you. <laughs> um, but actually I wanted to explore um, taking better pictures. And so I bought myself this great camera. Actually, um, Noel Mack from uh, Gymshark recommended me this camera. It's called, it's a Leica Q2. So I, got, I get this camera, I'm like looking at it and trying to figure it all out. And I'm like, I hit auto, auto, auto. And then I tell Noel, I was like, hey, I got the camera taking photos of my wife and my kids and my dog. And he's like, you are only using like 5% of the capacity of the Leica if you're putting it all in auto mode. I was like, all right, I'll put on manual mode, manual, manual, take a bunch of pictures. They all look terrible. They're overexposed. They're blurry. And so Toby actually recommended, he's like, hey, there's this great book called Understanding Exposure by Brian Peterson. And it'll teach you everything about shutter speed and aperture and ISO and everything you need to know about the camera. And uh, I'm reading it right now. And it's an amazing book. And I, I like taking notes. I have a pen in here. I like taking notes in my books. Uh, but Understanding Exposure is uh, this great book if you want to understand have a deep understanding of how to take great pictures. And the cool part is like, it doesn't really change. It's been the same thing for like a hundred years. So if you understand, you know, aperture and you understand shutter speed, understand ISO, like you actually now know how to take really great pictures. And, um, and so that's what I'm reading right now. My husband's been trying to get me to learn how to take better pictures because I am also very much just defaulting to my phone these days. Um, also just because I don't like lugging around a DSLR when I'm traveling around Europe. <laughs> I agree. I told that's the problem. It's it's really big and it's clunky and the battery runs out. Whereas yes. the iPhone just it always kind of just works well. Um but then when you take this one photo uh of a uh, 50 of them uh, for me it's this one picture that I have of Bailey I actually posted on Instagram uh, playing in a on a swing set in a, in the gym uh, at the local park. Like you take that one picture like oh now I get it. Because now you're like the the difference in in depth and the difference in quality is so much bigger. But I'm now taking 50 pictures in order to get one really good one. So I'm trying to get the ratio <laughs> down a bit. I mean, as long as it's not like taking a picture, then looking at it, then taking a picture, then looking at it. You're just taking a bunch of pictures and then reviewing. Yeah, right. Well, on the iPhone, you're just like, <laughs> you know, you're taking as many pictures yep. you want. And you hope one, one goes well. And then you end up adding a filter uh, to it or something like that. But um, but yeah, so that's what I'm reading. What, what are you guys reading? Rian, you want to go? Yeah. Right now, I'm reading Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. And hmm, that sounds pretty cool. It sounds like a good accompaniment to Storynomics, to be frank, because it talks a lot about the linguistic shifts that have happened online and how we work within that and then change the way we communicate because of it. And for me, it's very interesting as an SEO person because content is, is always super critical and storytelling is a major part of that. But the way we consume and communicate has changed so much, even since I started working in the Shopify ecosystem. It, 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 it's just been a fascinating read and I, I couldn't recommend it more. It, it's just phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Awesome. Yes. Very cool. Kelly? So I am, the book I'm actually reading right now is No Rules Rules, uh, which is about Netflix and yeah. the culture of reinvention. I am only like two chapters into it so far, uh, so I can't speak too much on it quite yet. But I pulled this book out right next to me to show Rian earlier. Uh, my dad gave this book to me a couple weekends ago, and it is called And How. I grew up in Michigan, grew up a really big hockey fan. And yeah, <laughs> so it's the story, it's 
Uh, it's a, an autobiography about Gordie Howe, and it's signed by Gordie and his wife. Wow. And so my dad was like, take really good care of this book. It oh is going gosh. to be worth a lot of money one <laughs> That's day. Awesome. That's so, <laughs> so fun. It's a, it's a, it's a tone. It's a big one. But yeah, I'm excited to, to dig in and get that story because that's there's a deep connection to my dad. That's so cool. We were, um, for one of the Build a Business competitions, you guys may remember this, we went to Necker Island, uh, Richard Branson's Island, and he's got this amazing library. And randomly, like, I was just walking around and uh, and I, I went to the library and I grabbed this book. Um, it's just some finance book, a small little book. And it was written by George Soros um, and ended up reading it. And I forgot to p- put it back in the library. So I took it home <laughs> with me accidentally. And then I looked and there's this letter from George Soros to Richard Branson in the book. And I still have it there. So every time someone talks about say, like a signed copy of something, I like think about like <laughs> this Richard Branson book that I accidentally took that George Soros um, like wrote a letter, a personal letter to him in, in it. But I feel like at some point I'm gonna, I'll give it back to you know Branson, and it'll be like a really good story. Exactly. Yeah. Remember that time I took your book? Yeah, exactly. I love it. <laughs> I'm gonna be like banned from the UK for like you know, a decade or something. <laughs> yeah, if it happens, at least you got a story out of it. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Actual final last question. Where can everyone find you on the internet? Um, at Harley on Instagram, at Harley F on Twitter. Uh, of course, Shopify.com. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That's Those are the best places to find me. I'm, I'm pretty pretty out there on the internet. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. And I just want to say, uh, re- first of all, this is a lot of fun. This is not the way I thought this was going. I, I you know, a couple of times I thought I was gonna get teary eyed. Um, but uh, this is great. And I'm, I'm grateful uh, that, that, that you asked me to come on. And, and I, I think it's really cool that that you folks do this and, and that you bring on interesting people into the podcast. Um, and so yeah, thank you. Thank you. You're one of the interesting people we bring on to the yeah, podcast. Thank so. you so much. For you. A lot to you me. count on that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Wrapping this up. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks again to our sponsors for supporting this episode. We have a YouTube channel that I swear we are going to update. We eventually. promise. Uh, but you can find it at youtube.com slash commerce tea. <laughs> we promise. We keep talking about recording the friendly Shopify store teardowns. It just hasn't <laughs> happened yet. One of us needs to wash our hair, <laughs> potentially. If you like our podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make us really happy and we like to read them. You can subscribe to Commerce Tea on your favorite podcasting service. We post new episodes. There we go. Every Wednesday now. So grab your mug and join us then. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Clocked In is a time clock for Shopify. With Clocked In, your team members can easily clock in and out of their shifts from anywhere. You can manage your team's hours as they work remotely with an intuitive interface that can be used from desktop, tablet, or mobile. Check it out at clockedin.io or in the Shopify app store.